Welcome to the Lori Life Podcast, where the personal, professional, and political intersect. Each week, we discuss a topic to help ourselves and other lawyers navigate our days with a little less stress and ideally a lot more fulfillment. On today's episode, we're talking about the 2019 world champion Toronto Raptors and about how it's important that lawyers are always learning. We're joined by our guest, Pam Rick, today, and I can't be more excited. My name is Mike Anderson. And I'm Darlene Tonelli. Darling, they won the championship. <laughs> As promised, we're announcing what happened with the NBA Finals on the Lawyer Life podcast for anyone who missed it. Yay. This is, if there's ever a time to just celebrate and be happy and talk about a team that did an amazing thing, this is the time to do it. The day yes. after the Raptors won the championship. Well, and much like all other lawyers, we had planned a more weighty topic to discuss today, <laughs> yeah. but all discussion will be about the Raptors for the first little bit, although not completely unconnected to lawyering. We're going to talk about the things to take away from the team's win and the things that we think can be applied to lawyering. Yes? That's exactly right. And we're also going to talk with our future guest uh, about why it's important to always be learning. So the two things come in uh, together really well. And with that, I will introduce our guest, Pam Rick. An old friend of mine, she's now a lawyer at Stockwoods Barristers. She's on leave currently to do her master's at NYU, which she just completed. Uh, and her special interests include privacy, violence against women, and feminist litigation. And on the Raptors point, talented athlete as well. So Pam, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Hi, Darlene. Welcome. Nice to have you. Thanks for doing this. Oh, hey, thanks for having me, especially on such a, an exciting day. My wife and I, we found, uh, we found a bar here in Brooklyn, which is where we're living for the year, where we've been taking in all of the Toronto-related sports things that have been going on, the very short-lived Leafs run, and obviously the much longer and more successful Raptors run. And it was amazing. It was amazing last night. We ended up you know, finding a group of, of other Toronto Raptors fans. One guy had brought out his Canadian flag to the bar, uh, and there was just a lot of, a lot of excitement. You know, this city has, uh, has been waiting a while for a, a sports championship, you know, since... 93 and this has just been something really really special to watch yeah this has been so much fun and one of the things that surprised me like in watching this run and uh, the way it's all gone i've been watching like the post-game interviews and the raptors a lot of them have been teaching kind of life lessons i found like throughout the playoff run um like for example Kawhi leonard and i think kyle lowry talked about this too uh you know when asked how are you handling the stress of being in the nba final uh they both talked about the importance of family that they have their health um you know and general personal uh life you know really looking at what's important to them instead of focusing so much on their job and their identity as a basketball player and a potential champion um pam did you did you notice any of this? What you know? Do you have any thoughts on on the way they've been positioning uh, their perspective on all of this? I totally noticed those comments. And as somebody who is raised by a single mother, the comments from Kyle Lowry and the sort of the perspective that he brought about the efforts that his mother made and all of the sacrifices that she made to raise him and give him all of the opportunities that he's had. 
you know, he talked about that stress, that's something to be, you know, worried about. And here I am, I've got basketball, mm-hmm. I play basketball for a living to provide for my family. You know, the rest is, is sort of icing on the cake. And I think, you know, bringing that perspective about what's important in life, having that broader outside of just the occupation uh, that we have as lawyers is, is something that's really important to, ha- to our, our mental health and how we practice law as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the other things I picked up in watching this playoff run that I think we could apply to our everyday as lawyers is taking a look at Coach Nurse and how he really innovated and he was flexible and he, as things changed and evolved, so did he. And one of my favorite examples of this is For sure. during the series, he basically, well, he used a high school style defense, like a defense so simple in nature that they don't run it in the NBA at all. And barely ever in college that called the box in one because he realized that it would be effective in a certain situation when there was only one star player on the court for golden state and he was ridiculed and people laughed at him they called it janky but the fact of the matter is it was different and it was new and it worked and the stats bear out that it worked really well so sometimes simpler is better i think and darlene do you have any thoughts on what we can take away from the innovation we saw with coachners I was just having a discussion with a lawyer earlier this week who had started his own firm um, back in the, I, I guess, the early 90s when it was much less common to leave a, a big firm and, and move into a small firm. And he was mentioning that he had a lot of people saying, oh, it'll never work. And what are you doing? And, you know, you're crazy. And I mean, the the trajectory of his career is so interesting. And we we laughed because I said, oh, well, you know, the first thing that happens when you have a good idea is people laugh and you have to like push through it or people naysay or they throw up all these obstacles. And it really is just part of the process. Um, And I think that we're really, we're seeing someone come in against unimaginable odds. Almost what I love about it is almost not knowing that, I don't know, like lack of thinking, you know, everything can be a, a huge strength. So maybe he thought he did know everything, but the the strategy was not the common one that people would use. And that's what worked. Yeah. And it was surprising. But, and most of all, uh, I think uh, effective. And and the last lesson, there's many others, but for the, for the purposes of this episode, the last episode we can take, or the last lesson we can take away from the Raptors uh, playoff uh, run this year, I think is, uh, and probably one of the largest narratives that uh, the Raptors had uh, is load management. So you had the star player, Kawhi Leonard, the Raptors, uh, get in the offseason. He was away all the year before with a leg injury. And so the Raptors put together a plan with him to make sure that he could be uh, sustainably playing at a high level throughout the season and really with a view to make sure that when it mostly mattered, the playoff run, he was going to be in a position to be 100% healthy instead of hobbling along after putting in too much effort during the season. And, uh, you know, we talk about this often on the podcast that sometimes it's tempting as a lawyer to be running at 100% all the time, effectively sprinting uh, throughout every day to try to get as much done as possible, as many hours build, you know, be looked at as, uh, as productive and, um, you know, wonderful uh, lawyer that oftentimes we, we link those things together. But in the end, you know, taking breaks, spending time with family, spending out time outside of work, that sort of oscillation that we've talked about uh, can actually position us to sustain uh, and perform better in the long run. And look at Kawhi Leonard, star player, NBA champion, who just didn't play a bunch of games in the regular season so he could actually perform at the highest level 
when it mattered most. So some great lessons there. Um, and, uh, you know, thank you Toronto Raptors for this, uh, really special thing. I also think that the other final thing is speaking of children watching, I think that kids right now see so much ugliness in the media that I I'm really shielding my kids from a lot of what's out there. And I think that what was so interesting is my son who's four he watched the the after we were watching the highlights this morning and he watched the part where the Raptors are going and hugging the other team. Mm. And he said, that's so great that they hug the other team and that the other team doesn't mind that they lost. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought they might mind, but I really like that he noticed that. And I do think that the sportsmanship um, at the end of the game anyway, was, uh, was awesome. So something to, to focus on. And then the other final thing, sorry, one more thing. I'm not usually as people, two final things, as people who listen to this podcast regularly will know sports is not uh, always my main thing, but I, I do think that in, there's something to be said for lawyers here about defining yourself as a team that can win, um, and understanding how to unite around winning. And I think in Canada, I, I would say we have a, a complex of just defining ourselves as the ones that don't win for a lot of the year. And I hope that this changes things. Certainly, as Pam mentioned, there's another team that could use a little bit of a, a fire lit under them that are Canadian. <laughs> um, so maybe they will take a little bit of a, a lesson from this. Because I think up until now, this is sort of about defining your standards. But I think there's been a long standard of getting into the first round of the playoffs for the Leafs and thinking, okay, our work here is done. I hope next year they kind of push past that. What do you think, Pam? Oh, I totally agree. I was thinking about this as the Leafs were going down in game seven of the first round again. Um, again. It hasn't been it hasn't been since 2004, since you and I, Mike, were in undergrad together in Ottawa that the Leafs have gotten past the first round of the of the playoffs. And it seems like this, this, you know, sadly insurmountable uh, obstacle, which, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that we will overcome, you know, next year's the year as we, you know, commonly tell ourselves. Uh, but there's definitely a lot of, there's, there's a lot to be said about creating a culture and expectation of winning both within a team and also within a, a sort of broader, within the city as well. I think that a lot of, a lot of what sport has to offer at its best is this ability to bring people together, to create excitement to uh, allow the things that divide us the opinions that divide us the stuff that you're talking about seeing in the media Darlene and shielding shielding your kids from um, letting that fall away and really uniting around something that is a, a, a common something that we can all commonly be excited about and we talk a lot on the podcast about diversity and you know last week's episode with Catherine Chang was about belonging and how to cultivate a sense and I think two things about watching the fan reaction to this. First of all, very diverse, bringing together a lot of people. The team itself brings together a lot of very diverse people from all over the planet, really, um, to find a way to unite, to win together. And I think the fan reaction has been great. And for me, if I was a professional sports player and I had previously seen the Air Canada Centre full of fans cheering for me, and then I saw the Jurassic Park, We the North, streets full of people. I would up my. I would. I would be pretty interested in upping my game to get to that level. I think that we can do this more broadly. So anyway, I'm always inspired by winning. You'd probably also be more inclined to to sign a new contract with the team that you were playing with, that would allow you to spend more than one season with that particular team, right? Right. I think we need to stop and say something to our number one fan, uh, Kawhi Leonard. That's right. 
<laughs> just, I know you love this show and you're, you know, please stop with the mail. It's too much. Um, but if you want, you know, if you really want us to continue to podcast this wonderful Lawyer Life podcast for you, specifically Kawhi, just sign with the Raptors. And as long as you sign with the team, we will continue to deliver this content to you, our number one listener. I know you love this show and you're listening right now. Uh, and that is no problem, buddy. Guaranteed, we are locked in. How does it sound? Don't see how he can refuse. Locked it down, Mike. <laughs> Especially today. He has nothing else to do today. He must be listening to us. <laughs> you know, out of any NBA player, I feel like Kawhi might be the most likely to win an NBA championship and then wake up the next day and listen to a podcast because he is just, he's his own person. And I love him for that. Um, but anyway, okay, Pam, we asked you on the show today, not only because, you know, of your Raptors prowess and uh, your your athletic background, uh, but also because you made a really interesting decision when it came to your career. And so there you were at Stockwoods practicing for a number of years. You had clerked at the Supreme Court before that. Uh, and then you decide that you're going to try something new and do your master's at NYU is taking a step aside. So can you walk us through that whole process, thought process, how you came to that point? Yeah, well, doing a, a master's of law was something that has been in my mind for a few years now. So when I was finishing clerking, there was sort of a fork in the road. It was either go and take this opportunity to do this LLM or take this opportunity to go and work at this uh, amazing firm. And for a number of reasons, I chose the second path. I chose this opportunity to work at, I think, one of the best litigation firms in the country. I don't reg regret it for a minute. And I got into my, I think it's my third year practice, or I was just about three years in. And I was sort of thinking again about, you know, those reasons why I wanted to do the LLM in the first place, to have a chance to think deeply and consider areas of law that I find really fascinating and important, and to maybe have a break from that day-to-day -day hectic pace of, of private practice to let myself do that. And so I made the decision to throw my my applications in again, and I was fortunate to get in. And I was also fortunate to have the support of, of my firm in taking this year off to do this thing that I think is both going to, well, I can say it has now because it's actually been done, uh, this thing that has allowed me that space to, to think and, and research and write about areas of law that I find fascinating. And for me, one of those was uh, tech-facilitated violence against women and how the law is responding to that. I also had the opportunity and went into it thinking I'll be able to broaden my expertise in areas that the firm practices in or that I specifically practice in. So, for example, media law. One of my favorite experiences here at, uh, at NYU was being able to take a, a course on mass media law with a man named David McCraw of the New York Times. He's the deputy general counsel of the New York Times. Some people might remember him from during the 2016 election writing this letter to uh, Donald Trump talking uh, about after Trump's lawyers had threatened to sue the Times for publishing allegations from women about uh, Trump's uh, abuse and harassment of women. 
he wrote this letter that went viral uh, and basically said, you know, part of the of the allegation of defamation, you have to prove that it's, it's harmed your reputation. And let's be honest, you know, Donald Trump can't do anything more to, uh, no one, none of us can do anything more to, har- to harm Donald Trump's reputation with his treatment of women than he has already done. Uh, so, you know, bring it on if you want to sue. And having him and all those war stories that he was able to tell, in addition to learning more about the American side of defamation law, uh, was deeply enriching in my professional life. And is your class, are you alone in the class as someone who was practicing law before, or is there a bit of a mix? No, there's been a mix. There's a mix in the in the master's program here. NYU has a particular uh, focus on making its class truly uh, international. And I get a lot, you get a lot of people in the class who have had a few years of practice uh, and who are, some of them are looking to, to have a hook to, to write the bar here and to become, uh, you know, accredited to, to practice in the U.S. And, and some of them are on their way uh, to a, a PhD or a JSD. Um, but it's a really, it, it's been a good mix of people who are, you know, purely students and people who have got that life and practice experience, which really enriches uh, a lot of the, or I found really enriched a lot of the discussion and the experience here. When you were um, making the decision to step away, I think, you know, we've talked about it on this uh, podcast and other episodes that sometimes it's really easy to, because of the nature of our jobs, um, you know, kind of get stuck in the here and now and not see beyond, you know, the next deliverable or next file or, you know, uh, the next week or the next month and and to look outside of our everyday. Um, how were you able to do that, revisit that, you know, that goal that you had um, when you finished clerking and, and, you know, see the forest from the trees and understand that, um, you know, taking a step away doesn't mean that, you know, your career is, you know, ending or anything like that, which I think some people might worry about. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't, I don't know that every firm would be as, uh, as wonderfully supportive as the as the one I've happened to to end up at, and that that was part of it. Knowing that my my job, my my space uh, at the at the firm would be there when I came back, uh, had something to do with with my decision. But just you know, in a broader taking a broader you know look at things, uh, it was a good time in my career and in my in, in my life to go. You know, once you get if you're if your ambition is to become partner uh, at a law firm. The further that you go into your career, the closer you get to partnership. And once you get into partnership, the harder it is to take that year off and really have a seamless uh, re-entry back into your practice. That's a, that's a real consideration. From a life perspective, you know, I'm not a I'm not a young kid anymore, but I've also still got some flexibility in my in my personal life to to be able to take an opportunity to kind of uproot myself and have this experience of living in New York, which in itself as a whole has been a whole incredible experience. Uh, being able to live the culture uh, down here, uh, especially as someone who's a bit of a theater nut, to understate things, um, knowing that I had the opportunity with my wife and her career as an artist to pick up now and not have to worry about uh, a whole a whole lot of things being being left behind, you know, taking the experience when it when it comes along when you have the opportunity uh, to do it and and knowing that you have the rest of your life to practice law as well. 
Well, and something I was going to ask you about, um, we talk a lot on the podcast about the ways to be the lawyer of the future, like the ways to keep yourself sharp, the way to contribute. And, and I do think that with the state of the world, we have to, we, we have to be really serious about what are we doing and how are we best contributing? And I'm, I'm very interested in the topic that you chose because I do think that there's a lot of work to be done there on the legal side, obviously. Um, and I think having worked with, like Mike and I do sort of in-house style work with, with all kinds of companies, but tech companies are certainly one of the, one of the areas that we, or one of the types of company we work with. And we do see a lot about, you know, what happens when you don't take that time to step out and sort of assess what should happen is that things just happen and no one sort of proactively thinks about the future or there's no template. Sometimes the law takes a while to catch up. Do you think that this background that you've got is going to help you become a better lawyer, help shape the law? Um, are you going to write about it? Like when you went into this topic, what were you thinking would be the outcome aside from the life experience, which obviously is huge. And we've talked about that on the podcast too. Um, but where do, where do you see it coming into your practice when you come back? Well, I, I hope it'll inform uh, my involvement in some of the uh, the firm's broader privacy work. We have this amazing digital privacy uh, expertise. A lot of folks in the in the firm are, are practicing in that area. I have for a long time, and Mike, I think, knows this about me, given our given our long uh, history. Uh, I have always been passionate about. Um, I've always been passionate about ending violence against women. Uh, I also have this uh, this passion and interest in uh, in privacy and and having the chance to think about how those two things come together in a digital age. I think is going to give me some some additional tools that I can use as a litigator to help advance the law and how it addresses these uh, emerging and in some cases entrenched issues um, of how technology and uh, violence against women intersect. Uh, so I think that's going to, that's going to let me, uh, do more in that, in that area. And I just think too, having the chance to have, uh, have learned and reflected, uh, on, on a broader area, a broader range of issues, uh, in the law will also add to the different perspectives I can bring to a problem that I get you know, put on my desk as a as a lawyer and think more more not just more creatively, but also have a broader understanding of the of the backdrops that exist against which we have to solve uh, and tackle these legal challenges. Well, I'm always sort of interested in this idea that there are always new fronts on the battleground. You know, like so things get won in a traditional context, so people understand that you know hate speech is bad. Okay. And then a new platform opens up and it's like, oh, just kidding. All of the rules are suspended and we're going to wait until there's a huge problem with misogyny and hateful speech online. And then we're going to say, oh, you know, hmm, new problem that we should take some time to solve. I don't I see it. And I, I think as a as a woman who has a public um, somewhat public presence at this point and understanding what other women are saying um, who are in that position, there's certainly it's it's a new form of something to be aware of you know like i think the things that female politicians are going through online in canada is just totally appalling um and i do think that there's something to be said for you know women in particular for this this particular point you know speaking out 
is always scary. And then now there's all this pressure that, you know, is, is baked into the online platforms that you just kind of have to agree to roll with until it changes. What are your thoughts on that? Is that something that you looked into as part of your, your thesis work or your coursework? I mean, that's something I've been uh, sort of looking into or been aware of for, I mean, for quite some time now. You look at the, because uh, some of the emerging issues, I'll give I'll give one specific example. Uh, I'll talk about uh, deep fakes, which there's, there are congressional wow. hearings going on down here about the impact of deep fakes uh, potentially on, on democracy. And uh, a couple of scholars uh, uh, named Daniel Citron and uh, Bobby Chesney have written a really good paper uh, on this particular issue. And you, you talk about how uh, the manipulation... What it is, just quickly, for people who don't yeah. know. Yeah, for sure. So a deep fake is basically a, a video image that has been doctored to make it look like somebody's doing something that they never did. Right. Um, there, yeah. If, if you folks go Google uh, Barack Obama and deep fake, I think there's a there's a video that'll come up that kind of illustrates uh, the phenomenon. So putting basically putting words in the mouths of people, or the more problematic origin, the more horrifying origin is the those are being used to make it look like women were engaging in sexual activity in which they had never engaged and that those deep fakes are being distributed to harass uh, and abuse uh, women. And so this has been a problem for some time, but it's not until it has been raised in the context of the threat to democracy and, and elections that we now have you know, congressional hearings going on down here about, oh, what is this? What is the impact of it? I think a lot of the the abuses that you'll see in technology, you can you can find those technologies having been deployed in really problematic ways against marginalized communities uh, before they sort of reach this mainstream uh, kind of critical uh, massive attention being paid for it. So I think we need to uh, you need to keep in mind that the ways in which these technologies are being deployed and who they're being deployed against and when we start paying attention to them. And I find too that I'm seeing, I mean, with the deep fakes issue, I think that there are readily available tools that permit the making of deep fakes. Like this is not a really difficult thing. I think some major platforms offer the ability to do that. And the, it always starts from this premise of, oh, it's good. Look at this technological advancement. But it's actually not that complicated to put in some pretty reasonable restrictions um, and to enforce, especially at the level some of the platforms are at now. They do have the resources to enforce these things should they choose to or should the pressure be high enough on them to do so. Um, and I think you're right. The election stuff, I mean, even just the recent video that seemed to imply that Nancy Pelosi was slurring her speech and um, looked drunk. I mean, these are really problematic items because people believe what they see on video. And I can tell you, having worked with tech companies where at the time that we all kind of we make assumptions about what people know about technology when we live in big cities and have all kinds of access to technology or talk about it as part of our jobs. But I mean, it is really not well understood that you can make a video um, look fake or look real when the real, when someone didn't actually say those words. And I think it's just something that if, if there isn't an understanding about it in the first place, I find that sometimes these things are hard to explain. People don't understand. They think that the freedom to make you know, to make an interesting new technology trumps people's rights to not have, um, you know, 
threatening content. I mean, these videos are used to threaten people as well with reputational harm and things like that. Yeah. Um, which is just a traditional form of violence against women taking a new, more, more mass um, format. I think that's kind of, for me, when I look at these things, it's coming out of the the homes, really. I mean, domestic violence as, a, as an issue going back many years was not such a public issue. And now you can take a domestic violence issue and make it a job issue, a reputational issue, um, even blow it up much bigger than the than the possibility was before because of technology. So I'm, I'm interested to know if there were solutions um, being discussed at NYU with the, all the brains in the room, because um, yeah, I feel like we're seeing, we're getting awareness of the issue, but where, where do you see the solutions coming from? How should people who are interested in focusing on this type of thing um, direct their attention? I mean, that's the that's the million dollar question, how we deal with these sorts of things. And I think we're seeing uh, between the congressional hearings here and there was an international uh, hearing with MPs and other elected members, I think recently in, in Canada as well, starting to talk about, okay, how do we regulate or should we regulate these platforms on which these types of videos can be can be distributed. And that is uh, a question that involves balancing freedom of expression uh, issues and equality issues, which are much more quality rights, which are much more well-grounded in Canadian law than uh, than in the uh, American uh, system, just by virtue of how their laws have developed. Uh, I, I, mean, I don't have a, a sort of bottom line answer about uh, what we do uh, about this, but we, we look at the harms that it causes, I, I think, as a general matter. Uh, we look at who those harms are caused to uh, as part of discussing this and bringing more attention to these issues. Um, we look at building communities of lawyers and scholars who are doing work in this area, who are proposing innovative solutions. Uh, one of Daniel Citron's uh, proposed solutions uh, has to do with the immunity that uh, intermediaries have in the United States under something called Section 230 of the Community Communications Decency Act, which basically removes liability for platforms like Facebook and Twitter for third-party content that uh, is published there, uh, and you know, and she's proposed basically. Um, uh, adding something of a reasonableness requirement for addressing that kind of harmful uh, conduct before platforms will be able to um, access that that immunity. So if they're taking reasonable steps to keep this kind of stuff off of their platforms, then they can have that immunity from from liability. Uh, and we talk about these these proposed solutions, and we and we you know keep moving forward and keep building public consciousness because I think you know as you said, uh, Darlene, we've made uh, strides in the areas of dealing with. Uh, domestic violence, bringing that out of the darkness into the into the light, understanding better that it's a public uh, issue, uh, not merely a, a matter of uh, uh, of domestic relations behind closed doors, and and we have to shed the light on and build. Uh, build support for among the broader population addressing these issues because I think law that doesn't go that doesn't um, bring along the hearts and minds of people uh, in society is not going to be particularly effective uh, in addressing these really serious issues. I mean, I think the thing that you're you know showing us is that going out 
and deciding to further educate yourself doesn't only have a great personal benefit to you, as uh, I think you've communicated, but as well can drive a huge public benefit. And um, it's clear that you're well positioned to help uh, so many people now avoid the terrible circumstances that we've discussed. The Not to get too heavy here, but <laughs> it's sometimes it's uh, tough to look at the way that information uh, is being used and the way that we take in information generally and to have informed experts who can um, speak to an issue, as you said, uh, to uh, include people's hearts and minds um, is a really valuable and necessary thing right now. So bravo to you, not only for taking a great personal step, but a step that um, so many people are going to benefit from. Yes, agreed. Were you going to say something, Pam? No? Oh, I was going to say (laughs) that. Oh, I was just going to say thanks, Mike. Thanks, Darlene. That's what it set you up for. Okay. Um, I got there we're, eventually. We're going to go to a quick break, and then we'll be back with our goods and grits. The Lawyer Life Podcast is brought to you by Interalia Law. Interalia lawyers have big firm training, in-house experience, and a wide range of expertise in technology, media, and entertainment. Our advice is business-focused, speedy, and practical. To learn more, visit interalialaw.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-A-L-I-A-Law.com. And we are back with our goods and gripes. Goods are things we want to promote and support. Gripes are things that annoy us. We have a guest today. So uh, guest first, uh, as we always do when we have folks over for dinner. Um, Pam, do you have a good yeah, I have a good, and it, it's in the spirit of this being uh, Pride Month, uh, and uh, as a member of the LGBTQ2S plus community as well, my good has to do with the stories of the histories of our communities being told in uh, in popular formats now, and I'd want to highlight two of those. One is uh, a, a podcast called Uncovered the Village, which has been done by Justin Ling of CBC, which tells the the story of the men who were murdered by Bruce MacArthur and hooks that into a broader history over eight episodes of the uh, community's relationship uh, and oppression uh, historically by the Toronto police. It's amazing uh, the detail with which uh, Justin has uh, told this story, and it's really important, I think, for people to hear. Uh, and then the second one is this uh, FX series called Pose, uh, which premiered last year. It's just started its second season, but it's, the uh, I think, the first television show that is telling the histories of the, the ballroom cultures in New York City in the late 1980s and early 90s, and the stories of racialized and predominant predominantly uh, trans women and their their fights, their contributions to the advancement of communities uh, and the joy in which they were living their lives at this time of uh, incredible oppression. And seeing those stories told in popular mediums is a, is a, is a good and, and something we need a lot more of. Bravo. I know on that note too, I, um, my good, I, I think I've mentioned the show before, but a former coworker of mine, uh, Dan Levy, um, co-created a show called Shits Creek with his dad, Eugene Levy, that many people know. And it's continues to get, I think, 
increased attention, which is so well-deserved. And a lot of um, articles recently have been focused on uh, Dan's contribution. Um, his character uh, is an LGBTQ individual. And there's an amazing scene. I think it's the second season or the first season or third season or some, some first three seasons, where he explains his sexuality by describing it through wine, which I, I think it, it was just so beautifully done. And he said, sometimes I like white, sometimes I like red wine. Sometimes I like rosé, and sometimes I like a Merlot with a Chardonnay label on it. I like the wine, not the label. And I loved the way that he so put it, and that's it's it's very befitting of how his sexuality is treated throughout the show. And it's an incredible show, and it's really neat to see somebody who I used to sit a couple desks away from doing so well. So that's a good on the content side for me, too. Wow. Those are normally I'm the one with the sort of politically large uh, <laughs> goods. And today I'm a little bit uh, on the more Mike style goods and grapes. I was going to say as my good that I participated in my first, um, you know, school fundraiser for my son's school. This is new because I'm, I'm new to being a parent that goes to schools. And I just have to say the things that schools do to do to make these kids come out the other side as good human beings, I just am I'm floored by it. I'll actually maybe even tweet there's a at the the stairs at my son's school. Between each riser of the stairs, they say like, drink water, meditate, be kind to others, you know, do yoga. This is amazing. This did not happen when we were kids. And it's just all when you walk in, there's always a a quote on how to, you know, treat others with respect. And everyone is different. And everyone has different strengths. And it's just such a beautiful environment. It's a public school. It's nothing fancy. It's just, um, this is the curriculum that they're teaching them. And to be around all of these parents, um, moms and dads investing a lot to make their kids have this great um, fundraiser thing that we did last night was just quite something. And to the to the theme of this podcast, there's a lot of there's a mix, right? Like there's some really heavy stuff happening right now with the world, and then there's some really great stuff like the Raptors. And I just I feel like things are going to be okay with kids if they keep learning this stuff early. So that's my good. Awesome. I love that good. Yeah. I don't think I have a grape. Pam, do you have a grape? I have a number of grapes, Mike, <laughs> but I <laughs> But yeah, I know you're limited in podcast airtime and I at the risk of taking us. I mean, yeah, in- yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> uh but to take us, you know, back into the into the dark place from which Arlene, uh, Arlene was trying to, you know, pull us out of. Um, I want to, I, I want to highlight a gripe of, uh, you know, of a political, of a political nature, which is um, related to my good. But the, the, well, we've made so many strides, and, and there are so many things to celebrate during uh, during what's become Pride Month now. Uh, we, my gripe is that not everyone in uh, our communities has benefited equally from those advancements. And, and, and my gripe specifically is that uh, trans folks and specifically trans women of color continue to struggle uh, and continue to face uh, oppression and harassment in uh, numbers far outstripping any other members of, of society. Uh, and we still need to, to fight uh, to fight to secure the equal rights uh, of members of those communities. And, uh, and, and it really 
gets my goat to see things like uh, the, the provincial government taking uh, trans uh, recognition of trans lives out of our sex ed curriculum. It gets my goat to see, you know, the Alberta government uh, kind of taking swipes at uh, gay straight alliances in schools. And, you know, uh, those are things that we really need to be uh, careful and vocal about uh, speaking up uh, on, especially at this time of year when we're celebrating uh, and also remembering a lot of the struggles of, uh, of these communities uh, that have gotten us to where we are today. Wonderful. Well, thank you for that, uh, Pam. And thank you for um, your contribution, which was wonderfully diverse and wide ranging today. Uh, and we're, we're so grateful to have you as a guest. I don't know if anybody else can have done it better than um, our uh, uh, eclectic uh, podcast uh, today. So thanks so much. And uh, I think that we might talk to you again sometime. So um, in in this sense, as we always say, we say talk soon, but I think that especially uh, we mean it for you. So thanks for your time. Thank you guys. Thank you. Okay, Darlene. Well, that ends it on this very special, I'll call it Raptors Friday. Okay. Talk soon. Have a good one. You too. That's it for this week's episode of LLP. Thanks to Inter Alia Law for presenting the podcast and to Nick Fowler for composing and performing our music. See our show notes for his website. Don't forget, we love feedback. Please comment in the review section or subscribe or like. We'd appreciate it greatly. That's it. Talk soon. <laughs>